electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Goldman Sachs says rate cuts are coming, a lot of them and fast. Several Fed officials today, though, are trying to push that back a little bit. And David Zerbo says while the Fed deserves a victory lap, Jay Powell needs to tread carefully from here. In fact, Zerbo is here to tell us what has him worried. Plus, our market guest says don't let this rally make you chase it. But if you're looking to get in, there are two areas that are still cheap. One of them is pretty controversial, and that's exactly why he likes it. He joins us ahead to make his case. And we're checking the charts after a year that few predicted. Carter Worth is here with the two trades he's fading now. Before all that, though, let's start with the latest on these markets. Dom Chu has the numbers, and we're coming off quite a win streak, Dom. And we're going to keep it going, at least for the time being. So what we're seeing right now is a stock market that's tilting towards the session highs, we're up probably half a percent for the S&P 500, which currently sets at 47.44 and change. Now, to give you some perspective, 48.18 was the record intraday high for the S&P 500. So let's call it roughly one and a half percent just below those levels with the current S&P 500. The Dow Industrials just about flat on the session, up 37,321 the last trade there. And the Nasdaq Composite pacing the advance marginally, so up about one half of 1%, 14,902 for the Nasdaq composite there. One place to keep a close eye on is the merger Monday news that we got so far today. That's U.S. Steel finally kind of wrapping up a lot of the merger speculation that's been going on about who would potentially take over this company. It will be Japan's Nippon Steel, and they're going to pay roughly $55 per share in cash to take it over. It's currently trading at $50.18 right now. This is a huge move higher for this particular stock. And remember, a lot of merger speculation going all the way back to this summer about who would end up taking it over. So watch those shares. Still, though, 5% below the takeout price. We'll see if there's any kind of merger arbitrage or at least risk arbitrage around what is happening with U.S. Steel. And then, of course, there's a huge move lower in certain parts of the market tied to biopharma. We know that many parts of this industry are maybe binary-related in nature. Some of those clinical drugs coming to trial. Structured Therapeutics is the one in the headlines today. It's down 38%. At one point, it lost more than half its value. Structure Therapeutics is one of those companies out with a mid-stage trial for an obesity and diabetes drug in the same category as Wegovy and Ozempic from Novo Nordisk, also Munjaro from Eli Lilly. Well, it came out with some positive trial results for its obesity pill, but they weren't nearly as positive from an efficacy standpoint as some analysts were looking for. That marginal amount of at least less optimism is what's powering that huge decline down. So again, Kelly, It came out with positive trial results, but the market was expecting so much more. It kind of gives you an idea of the kind of anticipation or optimism that goes into optimism about at least diabetes-related weight loss drugs. Keep an eye on structured therapeutics. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom. Thank you very much, Dominic Chu. Wall Street firms are going all in on the Fed pivot, with Goldman Sachs chief economist Jan Hatzius calling for five rate cuts next year and three more in 2025. He sees three consecutive cuts with the March, May, and June meetings. Meanwhile, Bank of 
of America's head of U.S. economics, Michael Gapin, has four cuts penciled in with easing in March, June, September and December for a total of 100 basis points in cuts. And that's about where the market is. But Cleveland Fed President Loretta Messer is pushing back on that today, saying markets have gotten a bit ahead of themselves. And just this morning, Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby told our Steve Leisman the Fed is ready to hike again if inflation's not under control. As long as we're being data dependent, if we're getting external shocks that drive inflation back up or that make us feel like the economy's overheating, I, I would be prepared to take that into account and keep adjusting the policy. So our job as central bankers is to be paranoid about everything, to be, be on the lookout for, for what could go wrong. Let's bring in CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman, along with David Zervos, chief market strategist at Jeffries here on set with me. Welcome to you both. Uh, Dave, let me just kick things off before we bring Steve into this and, and talk about why you think this is a moment um, where you know we can be off to the races with rate cuts. We can be off to the races with positive market expectations and, and all of our worries are kind of behind us. Well, I don't know that all of our worries are behind us. I liked what uh, Austin said today. I think they <clears throat> they should be always on the lookout for things that are, are going to go wrong. But it's, it's nice to have them in a position, Kelly, where they can react to the economy going into a darker place. When inflation's high and they have to fight inflation, they sort of leave the unemployment and the growth besides uh, are on the side a little bit because yeah. they're fighting that fire. And that's where we've been for two years. And I think what Jay really told you on, Friday, on Wednesday last week was that they're, they're sort of peri-passu again, that... Inflation and growth in the reaction function, in the sort of objective function of the Fed, they're sort of back to normal and they can be a little more responsive to economic downturns. And I think that really changes a lot of the look for risk assets as we go into next year. Listen, you, you've been vindicated. They've been vindicated by a lot that's taken place this year. Where would you say your concern in what direction does it lie for 2024? So, you know, I think part of part of like we didn't know SVB was going to happen mm -hmm. in March. It was OK. Something hits us. Um, and the Fed, I think, reacted very interestingly to that. They used the balance sheet, not rates, to handle that. And that may be what they do again if it's a problem in commercial real estate or something like that. Um, but I think the rate tool is now more available to them in the event that something like that does happen or uh, something in geopolitics with Taiwan and China. There's so many you can list off. The thing is, we just don't know. It's like supply shocks that hit us, whether it's Ukraine war, whether it was zero COVID in China, there's just lots of things that can hit. And it's nice to have the Fed back on our side. But basically, you think coming through COVID and a lot of, of the things that they've done and tried, that they're going to do much more in the way of kind of special lending facilities and things like that going forward than necessarily cutting rates to respond to a shock. Yeah, I think that's, we learned this with the ECB, with their TPI program to help the peripheral bonds. The UK, uh, the Bank of England did it at last October when the gilt market went into a bit of a uh, a tailspin. They used funding facilities and balance sheet expansion targeted toward the, the zone that was going into the red uh, rather than giving the entire economy rate cuts. And I, I think that's, that's where we're headed with the Fed backstop more when it's very specific to a sector or an area. If it's the overall economy and the unemployment rates shooting up to four and a half percent and things are getting messy quickly, of course, rate cuts come into the So planet. all of that said, and of course, you're right. I mean, I think they've looked at these tools and said, wow, in some cases, we barely have to use them and it achieves our desired result. But so do you then think we need four or however many rate cuts next year just based on inflation and everything that's been happening? Look, the, the sell side loves headlines. They love to see their name in lights. And so I remember after SVB, I think my, you know, 
one of my competitors who you had uh, up on the, on the screen beforehand, they were calling immediately for three or four rate cuts very quickly. We stayed very pat after SVB and said, this is a very specific thing. It's, it's, not, it's not rate cut territory. It's very specific to a couple of banks that don't know how to manage their mortgages. And, you know, it'll come and go, but I, everybody, the market always swings more, I, I, and the sell side loves the forecast I admit, more. I was surprised to see Goldman one of the first out of the gate here because Jan has been much more reserved. Yeah. You know, not one going for big, he- you know, he, if anything, his headline has been, I don't think there's going to be a downturn. He's right. kind of followed the Fed more than led them. And so that one in particular stuck out to me that, huh, why if suddenly he's they kind were, of They were pretty quick, if I remember, on SVB too. So I think yeah. they, were, they were very quick on that. Look, I, I've been in this business for 30 years. I've watched the sell side been part of the research, part of the trading side. What I've learned in watching all my competitors on the sell side is people love their name and lights with a big number next to it, like five or six or seven. And then, you know, and then they forget about it and they move back the other way. So uh, I, I thought all the presidents that you've had on and, and governors that you've had on um, and who've spoken afterwards presented a very, I think, you know, cogent, more reasonable assessment of what 2024 is. Interesting. And let me bring in Steve on that note, because I'm hearing a, a bit of caution from uh, from Zervos here, Steve, that we should be off to the races with all of these rate cut projections, and maybe we won't get as much as the market's thinking right now. Yeah, David's smart enough to listen to smart people and know enough to listen to them. I think that's where we're at right <laughs> now. Um, the, the Fed has a little problem here, and, and the Fed is trying to find the right, in my opinion anyway, Uh, message. And and, and the story, I think, is this. The Fed has had two phases of policy in the last three years, and both have been extremely clear and definitive. The first one was in the pandemic, Kelly, where the Fed had to bring rates to zero. And there was no question that the Fed was at zero and going to stay at zero. The Fed then pivoted, pivoted sharply to raising rates to fight inflation. And there was no question and absolute discipline on the committee about what it is the Fed had to do and how long it had to do it. We're now at a different place. A third message needs to be found. It hasn't quite found the right message. And that, that I think, is going to lead to some volatility and quite a bit of pushback. I know Fed officials have been pretty surprised by the market reaction. And yet it's a little unclear how they could have or should have done it differently. Um, you remember, as a policy, the actual statement, Kelly, really contained just one word difference that was the only change in policy by the Fed but the to dots. talk about <laughs> any. So po- much bigger. Well, but but that, that, that's exactly my point. The dots are not policy. The dots are an artifact of 19 different um, forecasts that happen as a result. Now, there are some guys, there's one person with the dot that agrees with the market. Everybody else on the committee, at least in their dots, disagrees with the market being below 4% for the year end on the Fed funds rate. And I think there's two problems. One is that they have to find the right message to kind of come to uh, some kind of agreement with the market on where this is going, how quick it's going. I think there's another issue around. I wonder if Zervis wants to take, talk about this. There's a lot of money in the system, a lot of money in the system for a pivot, such that when the Fed pivots, there's all this money that can now slosh back in. And that is a problem of Q, a residual problem, I think, of QE. And it maybe suggests that if they really want to control policy and the rate structure and, and keep financial conditions more, uh, keep them tighter, that it's really a function over time of bringing that balance sheet down. Right. Dave? We've talked a lot about that uh, this year, Kelly, and with Steve as well. Uh, 
We still have an $8 trillion balance sheet. It's big. We got a almost $9 trillion right. balance sheet at the ECB. We've got a $6 trillion balance sheet at the BOJ. Uh, Bank of Canada, Bank of England, you add them all up. It's a lot of, a lot of stuff that sits, uh, assets that sit on central bank balance sheets that have uh, seen losses and absorbed losses and a lot of reserves that have been put into the system, uh, high-powered money that, as Steve was pointing out, act as a liquidity charge to the system. I do think that's been a, a lot of the reason why the rate hikes haven't had as much punch uh, as they've had before. We've argued that with clients all year. And it's why we've been uh, not following the market and many of our competitors who were forecasting rate cuts mainly uh, by, th- now, by now, actually by September. Yeah. If we were sitting here exactly a year ago, I think a lot of those folks that you uh, put up on the screen earlier would have had two rate cuts mm-hmm. priced in for this year. Uh, and in fact, they hiked four times. So uh, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's fun to talk about big numbers and where it's all going to go in terms of rate cuts for the year. But I, I, I really think, you know, I thought, all of the, the speakers that came on after uh, Jay Powell on Wednesday and, and talked to the market, I think sent a pretty simple message. They're not in a rush. This was not an SEP forecast that was about immediate recession or lots of risk. It was a fine-tuning exercise where they said, look, we don't have to be as hawkish. We don't have to fight inflation as hard because we've kind of won the battle. And that's why in, in my piece on Friday, I called them victory cuts. Sure, but They're I- not cuts because you've you're losing something. Absolutely. You're cutting because you've won, or at least you've come close to winning the battle of inflation. Then my final, final, just to put a point on it question would be, you know, so these Fed speakers have come out and tried to, to push back a little bit to the expectations of a lot of deep cuts. And is your message that, you know, you think we might get fewer than expected next year because the balance sheet's absorbing a lot of this, the, you know, all of these reasons that we've talked about, things holding it better than expected, that you would actually listen more to that message. The market's ignoring it right now and shrugging them off and still pricing in the cuts. That's okay. Mr. Market likes to go and run and, and, and people like to fuel that and that gives us more reason to trade with customers and the sell side loves to trade. So, I mean, it's all, it's all part of the game. But, you know, if you're going to sit back and take a longer-term view, to be honest with you, uh, one of our salespersons at Jeffries wrote a piece, and I liked it. He said, you know, whether they cut in March, June, or Sep, it's really not that relevant for long-term equity and credit investors that are in this game for two, three, four, five, ten-year horizons. Whether they start a little earlier or a little bit late, the reality is they are winning. There's going to be some victory cuts. Maybe there'll be one, maybe there'll be three, maybe there'll be five. But they're not in some sort of major panic mode, and I don't think they're getting there anytime soon. And I think we should step back and look at this as, as good news on the battle. This has been a pretty difficult battle for two-plus years. I mean, a year ago in the summer, or a year and a half ago, we had 9% inflation, and mm-hmm. Jay Powell was being compared to Arthur Burns, and Absolutely. you had every guest on here that was telling you why we were going back to the 1970s. And here we sit with a 3.7% yeah. unemployment rate and a 3% inflation rate yeah. going to two. I, I think there's a celebration. There's a victory. And I don't know. I know he doesn't want to declare victory. But really what that message was on Wednesday was we can cut next year more than we thought because we have been. For a good reason. And for, not for a good a reason. One. And, and yeah. we have been, you know, on our way to what we see as a victory in this. Steve, 15 second final thought. Yeah, real quick, go ahead and, and bet against the Fed if you like. But you have to do so with your own view on inflation that is different from the Fed's. Now, not saying the Fed is right here, but you, you need to take the Fed at their word that with inflation as they forecast it, this is what they on average plan to do with rates. 
If you want to bet against the Fed and bet on a more dovish Fed, do so with a more dovish view of inflation, not the same view. You've got to come to the, uh, come to the table with a little added value if you're going to take that bet. All right. Gentlemen, thank you. As always, Steve Leisman, David Zervos, we very much appreciate it today. My next guest says everyone's giving too much credit to the Fed for the rally. What? Because markets have been resetting since November. Here to explain is Oswat and professor of finance at New York University's Stern School of Business. Dave just threw his hands up in disgust, Oswat. You got to give the Fed some credit. No, what do you think's going on here? No, I, I give Fed the, uh, the credit for hanging in there all through the year. But that said, Step back and think about what's happened to market set rates. Forget about the Fed funds rate over the course of the year. At the start of the year, the T-bond rate, the 10-year T-bond rate was 3.88%. Today, it's 3.95%. With all of the noise and, and, and talk about the Fed, through the course of the year, the 10-year bond rate is effectively back to where it was at the start of the year. I mean, I think if you look at when the market started to shift, I think it was the start of November, when you started to see the mood shift and expectations get reset about what the next year will bring. That, to me, was the bigger change than the Fed actually coming in and confirming what the market seemed to have already decided just a week ago. Well, let me dial that back and say, were, was the expectation change, basically, inflation's coming down more than we thought, you know, all, all of these kind of positive developments we were just talking about, that at heart is rooted in what the Fed is has done and now mm-hmm. can do in 2024, i.e. ease policy. The Fed is, is basically doing what it's supposed to do, which is act as a follower and look like it's leading the market when, in fact, it's following the market. I think in addition to inflation coming down, the big story of this year was the recession that never happened. The recession that experts showed us was absolutely certain to happen. And I think, in a sense, the relief that people have that that did not happen was as much a driver of what the market is doing now than anything the Fed might be doing. Acting like a leader when, in fact, they're a follower is a very clever way to to capture a lot of the dynamic we all watch playing out day to day. Okay, so then talk to us, Oswath, as you know better than anyone, um, valuations, you know, the market at these levels, expectations for 2024. What are we now looking at? The, the scary thing for me in markets going into the next year is now good news has to actually be good news. Last year, if inflation came in at 4%, that was good news. This year, if inflation comes in at 3% plus, that's going to be bad news. Last year, the economy not going into a deep recession was good news. This year, the economy slowing down will be bad news. So in a sense, markets have to be fighting that expectations game much more strongly this year. Which means that, you know, we're going to be watching earnings numbers again far more than we did last year because that's going to be an indicator as is the economy staying strong. Although, if I, I recall, your basic sense from looking at, um, you know, looking through things is that you think the S&P can return another 8 or 9% this year. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, that would be my expectation going into the year, 8 to 9%. But now I had 8 to 9% expectations coming into this year, and it's 22%, and 8 to 9% the year before, and it was minus 20%. Are you just writing so the same number year after year? <laughs> it's going to be pretty close. Your expectations number should not change that much, because if it did, we wouldn't be where we are in the market. If people expected the market to be up 20%, it'd be up today. So the reality is the expectations for the market should not be a wildly variable number. 
So when I see market strategists swing all over the place, my reaction is, you guys are making up stuff. I mean, and it, now the, the truth is markets, the expectations are pretty stable. What the market actually delivers is going to be all over the place. And you, when we were talking with Dave a moment ago, he saw the risk maybe a little bit more to the hawkish side, you know, that the Fed has to push. I'll just I'll just kind of put it this way, maybe has to tighten more than we would expect or, or ease less than we expect. Would you say that your concerns run in that kind of overheating direction or do they run in the direction as I'm, I'm kind of hearing more towards an economic slowdown? No, I think that you know, inflation will remain a story for the next year. And I will worry that the market's getting a little ahead of itself in deciding that inflation has been conquered. Hmm. I mean, inflation is down to 3%, but the Fed has said long term they'd prefer inflation to be closer to 2%. So I think the story for next year is whether the Fed is right and inflation will continue to drift down or whether it stays stubbornly at about 3% plus. All right. Aswath, as always, we appreciate your time. Thanks for checking in with us. Thank you, Kelly. Aswath Demoter and with NYU. Coming up here on The Exchange, my next guest is warning investors not to chase this market rally, but does see two specific areas that are undervalued. He'll tell us what they are and how to play them. Plus, the two trades that technician Carter Worth is fading, including one that he says has shot the moon lately. We'll reveal them later on. And as we head to break, let's get a quick glance at markets. Dow hanging on to a 16-point gain. It was up triple digits. It briefly turned negative earlier. The S&P a more decisive half percent gain today. The Nasdaq up six-tenths. Again, longest win streak since Feb of 2019 uh, after the Dow hit a record intraday high. We're back after this. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The three major indices just notched their seventh straight week of gains. But my next guest says, don't let the rally make you chase it, especially not into those areas that are already overvalued. Rather, he sees opportunity in two specific trades right now, and one of them may surprise you. I'm trying to decide which one. I think I, think I can guess. For more, we're joined by Chris Grisanti, MAI Capital Management's Chief Equity Strategist. Thank you for coming in as well today. Um, before we dive into that, do you want to just talk about this idea of victory cuts sure. and whether we can kind of sound the all clear now, as is widely expected for markets and right. the Fed? David used this phrase that I th think is a terrific phrase, victory cuts, mm -hmm. that will finally be able to cut. I just don't ever in my 30 years in the market ever remember a victory cut. Mm -hmm. The Fed raises, if things stay good like they are now, why cut? And then they cut sooner or later because they need to cut. So I don't ever remember a victory cut, and I don't think we're going to get one this time, which is why I think that the pundits looking for early cuts in, uh, in 24, 
they're either right because something bad's happened, right. or I think more likely they're wrong because the economy stays strong and the Fed keeps rates because they can. So there's a saying that you typically want to sell the last hike. Right. And that has not worked this time. Now, we have had a couple of other cycles where the S&P rallies 20, 25 percent before the bear market, but you can just sense out there that the mood has shifted and, and people are just throwing out the bearish thesis. Yes, for, for the moment, Kelly. And, and of course, that's when I, I would urge investors to be cautious once you start throwing out the bear thesis, because the better way to invest is, is to have both theses in your head at the same time and, and be cautious and wary that, you know, the Fed doesn't want to repeat the mistakes of the 70s and will keep rates longer if unemployment stays benign. One of my favorite little uh, signs of, you know, metrics, the, the fear and greed index, we're, we're in extreme greed territory. You know, we're coming up, we're at 77 today, we're on a seven-week win streak. Mm -hmm. it, it all looks like clear sailing, but we know there's usually some mean reversion. Okay, let's talk about a couple of the areas in particular you like, which have almost nothing to do with each other and are wildly sure. different. Um, one of them, which is perhaps more surprising, is lithium, right. which has had a really tough year, has gone against the idea that, oh yeah, just buy that for the energy transition, you'll be fine. Sure, and, and for folks who don't know us, we haven't owned a mining stock in 15 years probably. Wow. So what's going on here is that if I, we think folks have just gotten way over pessimistic. EVs are the future. They may not be the future in the first half of 24, but they are coming and, and they're building out charging stations, et cetera. So lithium demand will increase as we get towards the end of this decade. And the smaller companies will go bankrupt now because lithium prices are so low. This is akin to buying oil stocks, say, three years ago in the pandemic, where, remember, oil went negative yeah. for a day. And, and, and folks didn't want them. You didn't want to show them in your portfolio. So, so we think this is a great value play. So Albemarle, which is often the most high-profile name right. cited, it's down 32% this year. Is that the way that you would play this? Yes, I, I would play it that way. They're the largest producer in the world. The, you could argue that they're also the lowest-cost producer. It's hard to tell with some of the Chinese companies. But they will be around at the next up cycle. Now, when that's going to be, I'm not smart enough to tell. But I am uh, thinking that the stock's down 65% from the highs of a, 18 months ago. Wow. And that's about as far as it's fallen in its 30-year history. It's done that three times. This is the third time. We think it's a good entry price. Didn't even realize it was a 30-year-old company yeah. that we've been in this business for that long. Okay, the other area you like, I was, you know, when they say one of your calls is controversial, I think the healthcare one might be more controversial <laughs> right. after the year that healthcare right, is right, that right. nobody wants to hear about this trade now. So what do you see? Yeah, so healthcare was left behind, as we all know, in 23. Uh, when we did a poll internally, our, our, the professionals at our firm thought healthcare might be the best performing sector. I tend to yep. agree with them. And it's not just because it was left behind, it's because the stocks are really cheap. If you have stocks like and I'll tell you some names that people will groan about. Pfizer, Bristol-Myers, Johnson & Johnson. While they're selling cheaply, they have huge cash flows. Now, the growth isn't great, but with those huge cash flows, you can do stuff. You but can buy other companies. You can increase your dividend. You can buy back stock. All of this would have been true, though, at the beginning of this year when it was right. also widely seen as a safe place to hide or right. what have you. And then they've been terrible. That's, well, that's true about lithium, too. Right. So, so you pick your times, you go in slowly. But it, another year, Pfizer's down 40 plus percent this year. Just amazing. I wish they had fear and greed indices for each, each right, one right, of these because right. I think that one <laughs> right. would be registering a lot of fears. Uh, other than a couple of those pharma companies, there were some calls today on Thermo Fisher, Teva, mm -hmm. uh, things like Danaher. I mean, are there any of 
those of interest right. as well. Right. So the Danahers, the Thermo Fishers of the world, they are also interesting, great companies, a little more expensive. They haven't done nearly as poorly as the farmer side. We actually do uh, prefer the farmer side. Also, you're getting income now, especially now that rates are dropping. You know, Pfizer's now at over a 6% yield. Bristol-Myers really? close to wow. 5. Yeah. Wow. So we're talking about, you know, Verizon. So <laughs> Verizon-like yields and, and I think rock-bottom valuations too. All right, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Always, Always going fun, out Kelly. on a limb. We thanks. appreciate it. Chris Crisanti with MAI. Coming up, breaking up is hard and expensive to do. It's costing Adobe a billion dollars to call off its planned merger with Figma, the cloud-based design tool. The company blaming regulatory hurdles in Europe. So what now. That's ahead in today's Tech Check with Adobe shares up 2%. We're back in a moment. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a quick glance at markets. The Nasdaq is leading the way today, up seven-tenths, while the 10-year note yield is around 395. The S&P's up half a percent. As Dom mentioned, I think he said 48.18 was the intraday high there. So we're in that territory, and the Dow touching a record intraday high before calming down somewhat. Here are some of the movers we're watching. VF Corp shares are down 7%, and this one after a cyber incident they disclosed that impacted fulfillment center operations. Uh, not the first time we've seen a company have a big share price reaction action now to these cyber issues. Again, VF Corp down 7% on that. Elsewhere, Southwest is reaching a settlement with the DOT to pay $140 million for last year's holiday meltdown. Remember, probably do remember if you were affected, they canceled more than 16,000 flights during the last 10 days of 2022, have promised nothing like that will happen this year. The shares today down a quarter percent on that news. Let's get over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Yes, Kelly, thank you very much. A Hamas official in Beirut told Reuters today that they are open to Qatari and Egyptian initiatives on a hostage exchange that would pause the war temporarily. As to when another exchange might actually happen moments ago, National Security Advisor uh, and spokesperson John Kirby said he can't say that the White House is at a point where another hostage deal is imminent. The National Weather Service says 59 million people from Virginia to Maine are under flood alerts today as a powerful storm brings heavy rain, thunderstorms to the mid-Atlantic and northeast. According to poweroutage.us, nearly half a million homes across New England, New York, New Jersey are also without power. It has been raining hard. And the iconic blue mailboxes of the Postal Service are going high-tech. The agency is installing 12,000 high-security boxes to thwart mail theft. According to the agency, incidents at mailboxes account for a significant portion of theft around the country. Citing security concerns, the Postal Service declined to say exactly what upgrades have been made. You can try and figure them out. Kelly, back to you. I know. I always feel better just handing the letters over just to be safe. Tyler, thank you. I'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, this group of stocks has shot the moon, according to Carter Worth, up 65% since Jan 1. Tweet me if you can guess them. He's got the names and the narratives behind his call next. And before we head to break, let's do some show and tell, where we show you a chart and tell the story. And we're talking Costco today, hitting another all-time high and coming off its best week in 18 months after beating on earnings. The stock's seven-week win streak is its best in nearly two years. Here's what the outgoing CEO just told Squawk on the Street about a key part of business that's helping them stay competitive. 
Our Kirkland Signature, which has been a great brand for us, is also uh, a way of creating deflation in the marketplace and lower prices. And also it makes it uh, a nice item for the difficult item for the suppliers also to have to compete against. So, you know, that's always worked for us, our own uh, private label. And uh, that's part of the trick in terms of uh, having great prices and great sales. Welcome back to The Exchange. One of the biggest discussion points in the market right now is whether to chase or fade the home builder trade. We got some better data this morning showing builder confidence rising for the first time in four months. Their 2024 outlook also improved. But names like DR Horton, Lennar, Pulte, Taylor Morrison, and Toll already were trading at record highs again on Friday, taking a pause today. The ITB was our mystery chart. That's gained 65% this year. And we've heard a number of bullish sell side analysts say these companies are still cheap and attractive on historical basis. But my next guest says now is the time to take profits. Joining me is Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Carter, it's good to see you. Welcome. And why the builders? Why do they jump out to you? Well, I mean, it's just at this point, the sheer angle of the lines, right? Uh, for someone who spends a lifetime looking at charts, one could say, so what? They can go higher. Uh, but to my eye, we have something that's basically unsustainable. We know the two areas of the market that have moved the most, regional banks and home builders are very rate sensitive. But note today, with this good news coming out on the fundamental side, what's happening? The stocks are all down. Um, and that's because a great deal has been priced in already. We might have some charts we can look at, but I would just point out the following. Um, two things. The home builders as a group since the absolute low in the financial crisis, March 6 of 2009, have almost tripled the performance of the S&P. I mean, that S&P line has Apple in it and Amazon and Google. In fact, home builders have paced the QQQ, uh, which is the champions of all time. And so uh, it's long-term excess, but then on a more immediate basis, and you'll see that in the here and now chart, uh, we have a group that from the October 27th low is up 40 plus percent in a period where the market's up 15. So it's a beta trade, and we know that it has done what it might be expected to do in response to the drop in yields. Uh, but at some point, a great deal, if not all, of the intermediate potential is priced in, and that's my judgment. For what it's worth, our last guest, uh, Chris Grisanti, has also exited the rest of his home builder trade. But at the same time, we've got a lot of value players like Bill Smead saying these things, you know, could have a, a huge tail tailwind behind them. And the analysts we speak to are saying the valuations aren't that expensive yet. I think a lot of these, like Toll Carter, might trade, you know, under ten times earnings. I know it's not, you know, you're not a valuation Oops. guy per se, but um, you know, you look at some of it and go, okay, maybe there's still value there. And, and I think that's all about what one's time frame is, right? If one is looking very long cycle, uh, it's almost always right to hold on to real estate and to land and uh, what have you. But here and now, just deciding whether is this a place to have capital, at least full size, versus reduced capital or hedge capital, uh, my thinking is it's not a place to be as long as one might have been or has been only by virtue of how much has been priced in already. All right, but they were showing toll about eight and a half, Horton, a little over 10 times. Let's pivot from those to the regional banks, which are getting a lot more fanboys lately. Maybe not that's, maybe that's putting too strongly. A lot of people saying rates are normalizing, the economy holding in there, and, and it's time to take a look at this beleaguered area of the market. Yeah, so here, too, now this is a particularly impaired area of the market when we had the sort of the run on the banks in, about six, eight months ago. Uh, but regional banks, too, in response to the drop in yields 
5% to under 4 on the 10-year, uh, regional banks have surged. This is uh, a chart, actually, of the KRE, the uh, Spider Regional Bank ETF, uh, which has about 90 names in it, before the drop in yields. If we look at the next uh, slide, you'll see here what's happened since. We have popped all the way back to the level from which the collapse started. And that is the definition of a rally to a difficult level, which is to say there's overhead supply, a lot of dead bodies above, who are interested sellers, having lost a lot of money, are interested in recouping those losses. And so, uh, again, it's all about what your time frame is, but here's an aggregate that in one month is up 20%, the S&P is up 4-5. It's just a little too hot. Uh, it's often right to take the road less traveled, and that's my thinking here. All right, Carter, final parting word, because I remember talking this time a year ago when both of us were expressing some concern about the market, and uh, it went totally the other way. What do we draw from that? What, what does that tell us, the S&P broadly speaking? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's all about, again, your time frame. To think about on the October low, just October 27th, the Dow was down for the year. The oldest aggregate of all. I wow. mean, this last six, seven weeks has saved it and has put a lot of edge on the S&P. But it's it's always that way. It's just a, a day or two or a week or an intermediate period from being good or quite bad. Just to think October 27th, the Dow was down on the year. Was that a good year? No. Now we have this ricochet and it's all love again. Uh, I think you're going to find uh, uh, it's going to be less sanguine. Uh, when 2024 comes around. All right. Carter Worth, thank you as always. Appreciate you joining us today. Thanks. We've got some breaking news on Nikola founder Trevor Milton. Let's go to our Phil LeBeau with these details. Phil, what can you tell us? Kelly, uh, Trevor Milton has been sentenced to four years in prison for his role in fraud committed at Nikola when he was the CEO. Two counts of wire fraud, one count of securities fraud. The prosecutors were looking for 11 years in prison. The defense attorneys were arguing that Trevor Milton should be given probation, in part to care for his wife who has been ill. The judge ultimately decided Trevor Milton, the founder and former CEO of Nikola, will be spending the next four years, at least that's the sentence, four years in prison for fraud. Kelly, back to you. Phil, does, is this a surprising sentence? Uh, because it's, you know, to have, to see someone going and, and now having to spend a significant jail time really tells you about the seriousness of what they said took place here. Well, these were serious crimes. I mean, if you were an investor and you bought into what Trevor Milton was selling uh, when he was the CEO in the summer of 2020, you could make an argument. You could say, hey, look, you know, uh, this caused me a lot of financial harm. And what the judge ultimately had to decide was, did that harm that was caused by Trevor Milton uh, making the claims that he made, the wire fraud claims, as well as the security fraud, was that worth a decade in prison or was it worth much less? And ultimately, he decided four years was the appropriate term. Also, keep in mind that in arbitration two months ago, uh, Trevor Milton was determined that he will have to pay $165 million back to Nikola. Wow. And just for one more thing to keep in mind, Kelly, he still owns 52 million shares of Nikola. Wow. So I, it, we're waiting to get some details from the courtroom in terms of what he will have to give up financially in addition to this sentence of four years. All right, Phil, thank you for bringing that to us.
Pretty big news there, our Phil LeBeau. Coming up, a flurry of deal activity today in everything from steel to software, but Adobe going in the opposite way, calling off its $20 billion merger with Figma that was announced back in September. We've got the details and the other names that could face similar challenges next. Welcome back. Adobe terminating its $20 billion merger with the design software maker Figma. Let's head out west to Deirdre Bosa for the details in today's Tech Check. Deirdre? Hey, Kelly. So that deal was scrapped as regulators. They raised concerns about it eliminating competition, removing Figma as a threat to Adobe. But a lot has happened over the last 15 months and the landscape. It now looks a lot different. Namely, there has been the massive generative AI platform shift, a movement which Adobe has largely met so far and been a part of. Shares are up more than 60 percent since that deal with Figma was announced. Firefly, its generative AI product. And meanwhile, it has continued to develop Adobe Express, a real-time collaboration tool that does some of what Figma was supposed to do for the company. So Adobe's going to be okay, and it could even do an expanded buyback as a consolation prize for Wall Street. Figma, though, still a private company, maybe more of an open question. We know less about its last 15 months. This is a Silicon Valley software design darling, and the price tag that Adobe was willing to pay for it led to no shortage of sticker shock. $20 billion, what Adobe was willing to pay. That was double Figma's valuation at the time and 50 times its annual recurring revenue. Figma is unlikely to get that from someone else, especially after so much regulatory scrutiny. But Adobe's billion-dollar breakup fee to Figma, that could be seen as the equivalent of a pretty good funding round, allowing it to go on the offense, as a Figma board member put it to me earlier today. Now, the company, Figma, has been releasing its own AI plugins, and earlier this year it acquired Diagram, a startup building at the intersection of design and AI. More broadly, though, Kelly, there is this frustration here in the Valley over the failure of this deal. One investor I spoke to called the process long, opaque, and Byzantine. And with the IPO market still uncertain heading into 2024, this wasn't a great sign for the M&A market, another type of exit for the VCs after a pretty hard few years. I'm surprised. You know, I wonder if there was something in that meeting that they reportedly had with the DOJ a couple uh, days ago that they thought there was no path forward. But after some of the wins that companies have had in court, this felt like it was important enough to Adobe that they'd want to stick with it. Right. It kind of makes what Microsoft was able to do, right, with Activision Blizzard, biggest deal of the last few years, all the more astounding. But when you think about a big tech company looking perhaps at a software company or any company, really, and thinking about all the scrutiny they have to go through, this perhaps puts a chill on that. All right. Deirdre, thank you very much. For now, we appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa. Coming up, Adobe may be calling off that merger, but Masonite is leaving its doors and windows open for a deal. Announcing they will acquire PGT Innovation for $3 billion in cash and stock, Masonite shares down 16% on the news, PGT hitting an all-time high. We'll speak with Masonite CEO next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Masonite will acquire Florida-based patio door and window maker PGT Innovation for $3 billion in cash and stock, sending PGT shares to a record high today while Masonite is down 17%. It's their second deal this year as well, agreeing back in October uh, to acquire Fleetwood aluminum products. Here now to talk about it is Masonite CEO Howard Heckes. Howard, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Real quickly, do do the the investors think you're overpaying here? I mean, that's a pretty big share reaction. You know, I think, Kelly, it can be typical in deals like this, transformative deals where the acquirer might trade down in the early days. And obviously, the target trades up a bit. And we're seeing that today. But this is a marathon and not a sprint. Uh, We are so excited about the transformative nature of this deal. And we're really looking forward to continuing to talk to our shareholders 
in the near term, as obviously we work toward the close, so that they can understand the powerful rationale and the significant upside of bringing these two companies together. Does this put you in the window business for the first time? And why is the consolidation so important right now in your industry? Sure. Uh, this enables Masonite to provide differentiated products very much aligned with our strategy and to meet homeowners' needs for every opening around the home. So Masonite, nearly 100-year-old company, has been around providing door solutions, entry and interior door solutions for homes. And PGT, a fantastic company, offers impact windows, non-impact windows, sliding glass doors, garage doors, and patio enclosures. So now you think about Masonite having the full breadth of products to solve homeowners' needs for every opening around their home. At this time of year, it makes me think of the chimney. You know, you can't forget that that opening. It was very important once a year. It sure is. My granddaughters are looking forward to that day here coming up next week. I bet she is. Um, so let, <laughs> let, let me ask you just, I, I guess, more broadly speaking, what are the dynamics? We've, t- we've talked about how this industry has struggled a little bit post-pandemic. Um, do, this doesn't feel like it's going to be the last acquisition that, that you do. Right. Well, look, we're committed to our strategy. We have called it Doors That Do More, and it is all about being the most consistent and reliable supplier in the space, solving life and living problems with differentiated products, and winning the point of sale through down-channel marketing. PGT is so complementary to our business because, again, the products are complementary to ours. Their channels are not typical. We sell through big box retail and wholesale, and they sell through independent dealers and direct-to-consumer. And so there's a lot of fantastic overlaps here. But we're committed to our strategy to delivering solutions to homeowners and we think PGT is a natural fit for us and able to do in, you, in order to do that. I'm curious if you can rule out antitrust because less people think this is too esoteric or something for the, for the FTC or the DOJ. Sure. I think they got involved sure. with a lock uh, deal earlier this year. It was uh, Spectrum Brands, I think, was going to sell to the to uh, Asa Abloy. In any case, there was the, they were sued to stop that for door locks. So could you potentially run into some regulatory hurdles here? Listen, we believe our products and our channels are very complementary, and there are uh, almost no overlaps between what we do. We have terrific advisors in this deal, and obviously we expect to close in mid-2024. All right. Howard, thanks for joining us to talk about it today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Howard Heckey's Masonite CEO. You too. Ticker door. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.